Okay. Well, let's go ahead and get into God's Word. I just want to ask God's help before we open up the Word of God together. Lord, you know it's impossible for one of your creatures to really totally understand you and explain you. I can't, Lord. But I pray you'd, you'd give me grace to do something to, to, that, that all of us together would... Think about, ponder our Creator. And then it would be valuable for us to do so, that we would know you a little bit better, we'd walk with you a little bit closer, that, Lord, we would worship you a little more fervently because we have taken time just to consider who you are. So do that work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, saints, we begin a brand new series today on the attributes of God. And um, if all goes well with this mic I'm wearing and it records well, we'd be able to put it on the radio too, which would be great. But I'm assuming that everybody here believes in the existence of God. You probably wouldn't be joining us today unless you believe that God actually existed. But once a person comes to believe in the existence of God, the next all-absorbing question in his mind is, well, who is this God who actually exists? What is he like? And that's the question we're going to seek to answer over the next year. It's going to take us about a year, I think, to go through the various attributes of God. And actually, um, <laughs> I can't think of a better thing for us to do even if we spent the rest of our lives and never considered another subject, I don't think there would be much, there would be anything more important for us to do than just to be considering God again and again and again so that He would fill our vision. Now, there's many different ideas and theories of what God is like. But what we want to be interested in is not what other people think about God or, other, or, or man's opinions about God, we want to see what God himself reveals about himself in the Bible. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. We can trust it. It's our objective source of truth. It's not something that's going to be right one day and wrong the next. It's not going to change upon our feelings. It's objective. We can go to it and look at it and read it and analyze it and study it and go deeper and deeper. So we're going to take the Bible as our source book to get to know God. Now, you might be thinking, Brian, what do you mean when you talk about the attributes of God? What's an attribute? Well, an attribute is a quality or a characteristic of someone. So the attributes of God are the qualities and characteristics of God. They're the things that make God, God. If you want to boil it down to its simplest form, the attributes of God are the things of God that make God who He is. And again, you know, there is nothing more important for us to study 
than God. I, I've been to churches and I myself have taught things like stewardship, time management, how to deal with anxiety, what to do about stress in your life, child rearing, marriage, and all those things are taught about in scripture and they're important, but they pale into insignificance when you compare them to the study and the knowledge of God. Did you guys know that the word theology means the study of God? Theology comes from two Greek words, theos and logos. Theology. Theos is the word for God. Logos is the word for word. So it's the word about God or the study of God. So we're going to be embarking on theology for the next year. But it's not just any theology. Theology can be divided into subcategories. For example, soteriology. That's the study of salvation. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Christology is the study of Christ. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Eschatology is the study of end times. But there's one branch of theology that is the highest branch, and it's theology proper. It is the study of the attributes of God. There is no branch of theology that is more important for the Christian than this one, theology proper, because we need to know our God. So when we come to theology proper, we're going to face a profound difficulty. And the difficulty is that God is infinite and we are finite. There it is. That's our problem. He's infinite. We're finite. He is wholly other than us. And the only way that we can relate to God's attributes is to think of something in our lives or our experience that we can understand. For example... If we try to define holiness, we define it as the absence of sin. Now, why do we define holiness that way? Because we understand what sin is. We've committed many sins in our lives. We know we've experienced sin. And so the way we define holiness, oh, it's the absence of sin because I know what that means. Or if we say God is eternal, we define eternal as having no beginning and no end. Now, why do we define it that way? Because we had a beginning, and we're going to die and come to an end in this earthly life. We understand that experience. So we have this difficulty being finite creatures trying to understand the infinite. Thomas Manton, who was one of the powerful Puritan preachers of the 1600s, wrote this. He said, We know God as men born blind know the fire. They know that there is such a thing as fire, for they feel it warm them, but what it is they know not. So that there is a God we know, but what he is we know little. And indeed we can never search him out to perfection. A finite creature can never fully comprehend that which is infinite. So I don't want you to <laughs> have expectations that in this study you're going to know all there is to know about God because that's an impossibility but I hope that you will learn more about who God is through this series of studies. There's three types of beings. There are those that had a beginning and will have an end. And I would put plants and animals into that category. They have a beginning, they have an end. And then there are those beings who have a beginning but will have no end. 
I would put men and angels into that category. We have a beginning, but we're never going to cease to exist. But there is one other being who has no beginning and has no end. And there's only one being who fits that description, and that's God himself. Now, in order to start our study today, I want us to meditate on the self-existence of God. That's the attribute we want to start with. And in order to do so, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 3. Because in Exodus chapter 3, God shares with us, originally with Moses, but with us because we're reading the Bible, he shares with us his name. In Exodus chapter 3, we find the Israelites as slaves in Egypt. They've been pressed into forced labor. The Egyptians have compelled them to labor rigorously. He's made their lives bitter with hard labor, building these bricks uh, the sons of Israel are sighing because of their bondage. They're crying out to the Lord. And their cry, the Bible says, rose up to God. And God heard their groaning and remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God came down and appeared to Moses in the wilderness in the form of a burning bush. So that's where we're going to pick it up. Exodus chapter 3. And I want us to think about the words in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now God is telling Moses what his name is. My name is, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, I am is just another way of saying Jehovah. Jehovah God, his name is I am. There's three things as we think about the name of God being I am. There's three great truths that will surface from that. And the first one is that the true and living God is self-existent. Now what is the self-existence of God? Could you tell me or could you tell someone else that your name is I am? <laughs> well, no. You could, but it wouldn't be true. You could say, I am. Well, to say I am means that I have always been, I am now, I always will be. I just am. I never came into existence and I never would cease to have an existence. I just always am right now in the eternal present. <laughs> So to say I am is the opposite of saying that you were born, lived, and died. That's what we have to say about ourselves. But God can say, no, Abraham, I am. And it's right here that we run into so many problems because we don't have any categories for anything that we've ever seen or experienced in life that's like that. We can't see, hear, smell, feel, or touch anything that did not have a cause that brought it into being. I exist because my parents conceived me. My parents existed because their parents conceived them and brought them into existence. And so forth, all the way back to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were brought into existence by God. God was the cause of Adam and Eve. Every plant that exists had a plant that produced it. Every animal had a, a previous 
parent that brought it into existence. So everywhere we look in this world, we see creatures like us. I don't know about you, but I find it almost impossible to conceive of something that never had a beginning. My mind starts short-circuiting when I try to imagine this kind of a being who never started to exist. He just always was. Does that that just drive your mind crazy to try to think of a God like that? It's just crazy. When we come to God, we find a whole different kind of being. Human beings are completely different from the divine being. Human beings are not self-existent. We have been brought into being by another, but God was never brought into being by any other. So when your, your three-year-old comes up to you and says, Mommy, who made me? And you tell her, well, God made you, honey. And she says, well, who made Daddy? Well, God made Daddy. And then she says, of course, well, who made God? And you say, well, nobody made God. That little brain is starting to wonder, well, if God made mommy, if God made daddy, if God made me, there has to be someone that made God. And that's where all of us go in our mind. We think that everything has had a cause. But that's not really true. Every effect had a cause. But God is not an effect. God is the first cause of everything else that exists. To say, the little girl may say to you, well, I know how, I know who made God. God. (laughs) I know who made God. God made God. God made himself. But of course, that's impossible because that would mean that something that did not exist made something that did. And that's, it, that breaks the rules of logic. It's absurd. It's like saying that life created itself. And I know scientists kind of say that today. They talk about spontaneous generation. That's saying that life created itself. It just spontaneously generated. Non-life spontaneously generated itself into life. Um, being came from non-being. Life came from non-life. But no, if life didn't exist, then it's a contradiction to say that something that didn't exist brought something itself into existence. So no, we can't say God created God. It's God's own nature to exist. And that's why he has always existed, because that's the, the essential nature of his being. We'll put it like this. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God does exist. No human being has the power of being within himself, but God does have the power of being within himself. God does not owe his being, I'll put it this way, God does not owe his being to anything outside of himself. He has the power of being within himself. Let's say that God was made by a bigger and greater and more powerful God than himself. Okay, so this bigger God made our God, which is actually what Mormons believe, if you dig into their theology. So, our God was made by another God. Well, okay, who made the other God? 
Well, a bigger God than him made him. Well, then who made that God? You see, it doesn't solve any problems. It keeps going back further and further and further. And you would have to end up with this doctrine that we have a, an eternal succession of gods, an infinite succession, <laughs> making the other God, making the other God, which to me doesn't make any sense at all. That's not logical. There must be a first cause. And the Bible describes the first cause as the God of the scriptures, the true and living God. You know, that's what frustrates me so much about the Big Bang Theory. I don't know if you guys have ever thought much about the Big Bang Theory. But scientists say that before the Big Bang, the universe may have been, they don't know for sure, but they speculate that it may have been an infinite stretch of an ultra-hot, dense material persisting in a steady state. Whatever that means. But that's how they describe it. And then this gigantic explosion happened and the whole universe came from this ultra-hot, dense material being flung out into space, creating the stars and the planets and everything else that exists. Okay. The obvious question is, where did that ultra-hot, dense material come from that exploded? And where did the, the explosion come from? There's no answers for these questions. The scientists basically have to say that matter is eternal. Right? Or how can you have this ultra-hot, dense material that undergoes the Big Bang and creates the universe unless it's already there and it's been there from eternity? Uh, to me, that makes about as much sense as flying pigs. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. Either matter is self-existent and eternal or God is self-existent and eternal because there must be a first cause. Now, Yahweh, Jehovah, describes himself as the I am. On the day he created the earth, he could say, I am. And 200 billion years from now, he can still say, I am. And interestingly, the Lord Jesus in John 8, 58 says, Before Abraham was born, I am. How could any human being say something like that? Only if that person was God in the flesh, which is what the Bible describes Jesus to be. Only if that person was uncreated and uncaused, having life within himself, which Jesus claimed to have. So if God is self-existent, then he must be a necessary being. And I describe a necessary being as a being that cannot not be. God is a necessary being because he cannot not be. So if God is self-existent, he is the uncaused cause. He has the power of being within himself. And if that is true, then there's two other tremendous truths that must also be true. And I want to look at those two with you. The first is that the true and living God is eternal. Now, we have no trouble believing that God is never going to cease to exist. Why not? Well, because I'm never going to cease to exist either. Angels are never going to cease to exist. There's other things in our experience that we know of that will never cease to exist. The problem we have is not that God will ever cease to exist, or believing that, our problem is believing that he never came into existence. Mm -hmm. At least that's my problem. 
because like I said before, we, we can't see, feel, t touch, hear any other thing in this world that is like that. But that is what the Bible says about our God. And let's look at some passages of Scripture this morning that talk about this. Uh, the first is Psalm 90. Verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2. The psalmist writes, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the mountains, before the earth and the world came into existence, from everlasting to everlasting, you are our God. Clearly, the psalmist is indicating that God has been from everlasting here. Okay, let's take a look at another one. Let's go to the New Testament and look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now here, Paul gives a great doxology in the middle of his letter he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He calls God eternal and immortal. I want you to focus on those two words for a moment. Eternal and immortal. And then go to chapter 6 of First Timothy. Look at verse 15 and 16. Here he's speaking about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now again, he speaks about God being immortal. And he says here, he alone possesses immortality. Now, what do we mean by immortal? Well, the word immortal means not capable of dying, not capable of perishing or being destroyed or ceasing to exist. But wait a minute. How is it true that God alone possesses immortality? Because I'm never going to cease to exist and neither are you. The angels are never going to cease to exist as far as I know from Scripture. We will either dwell in heaven or hell. Well, I think what it means is that God alone possesses the quality of immortality within himself. And if we possess it, it's only because God has given it to us. We don't possess immortality by nature. We possess it because God has granted to us and to the angels that particular quality. God can no sooner cease to exist as he can begin to exist. That's why the adjective eternal is applied to him. So often, the Bible talks, well, Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Or Genesis 21, 33, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. 
or we could read first Corinthians or I'm sorry first Chronicles 1636 blessed be the Lord the God of Israel from everlasting even to everlasting or Psalm 93 verse 2 your throne is established from of old you are from everlasting God's truth is everlasting, His kingdom is everlasting, His dominion is everlasting, His loving kindness is everlasting. Now why? <laughs> because God Himself is everlasting. So let's just stop right here and think through this quality of God, His eternal nature. For me, this attribute of God causes me to marvel and wonder and adore Him. Because my creator just is. He is wholly unlike me. He's wholly unlike anything else in all the universe. He stands alone. And that's why Paul says God alone possesses immortality. He alone deserves my worship. He's worthy of my dumbstruck adoration. He's a in a class all by himself. And that brings us to a third truth from the great name of God I am and that third truth is that the true and living God is self-sufficient he's self-existent he's eternal and he's self-sufficient if God is self-existent then he must of necessity be self-sufficient now what do I mean by self-sufficient I mean that God doesn't need anything else God is in need of nothing a self-sufficient being is not dependent on any other creature or any other thing to be whole or to be complete. If God has always been, that means that God was before this world was. That means that God existed quite capably, quite happily, before there was anything else that we know, that we can observe. And if he existed before anything else, then he was absolutely free from any dependence or need on anything else. All other beings derive their life and blessedness from God, but God has all he needs for his blessedness and happiness in himself. I think the doctrine of the Trinity, which is what we're going to be talking about next week, tells me that there's a community of persons within the divine essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have always existed from all eternity, and this unity of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, this community has been this community of love, where they have enjoyed fellowship among themselves, and they have loved one another, and this has created all the blessedness and all the happiness that the triune God has ever desired. He, he's had that within himself. Now, is it actually true about God that he is self-sufficient? That he doesn't need anything outside of himself? I think the Bible clearly teaches that that is true. Let's look at Acts 17. Verse 24. Paul here is preaching on Mars Hill to a pagan audience. And he's describing the God... The true and living God, the God of the Bible. He's describing that God to this pagan audience. And he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands 
as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, right in this verse, we have the doctrine of this God's self-sufficiency stated in a nutshell. God doesn't need anything. He's the one that serves everyone else. He's not served by human hands. Now, yes, the Bible does talk about man serving God. But God doesn't need man to serve him. If man serves God, it's man's privilege to serve God. It, we can't add anything to God by our service of God. This is a humbling truth because it means that you or I can't add anything to God. God didn't create us because he needed us or was lonely or wanted some companionship. He already had the Trinity. You don't need anything besides that. God didn't create us because he was somehow incomplete and this, by making us, now he was going to become complete. You know, like we talk about when you're married, your other half. That other person completes you. Well, God's not like that. He doesn't need another half. He's whole in and of himself. If that's true, then why did God create the universe? I believe he did that not to fill his own need, but because he desired to make known his own glory to creatures that could appreciate that and enjoy his own glory. His creation of the universe was an overflow of who he was. He's the fountain spewing forth life. These, these, these refreshing waters coming forth from him. But think about, well, let me, let me, let's go to another scripture to do that. Go to Psalm 36. Okay, Psalm 36, let's read verses 8 and 9. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you, capitalized Y for you, we're talking about God. For with God is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. So here, God is described as a fountain. And of course, a fountain produces an overflow, doesn't it? Usually it's water, but in this case, it's a fountain of life. The overflow of life comes from God. And so what does a fountain do? What needs does a fountain have? Well, a fountain doesn't have any needs. A fountain doesn't take from others. A fountain gives. How do you serve a fountain? Well, you really can't serve a fountain. The fountain serves you. About the only way you can serve a fountain is to drink from it and then find exhilaration and refreshment and then proclaim to other people how good the water from that fountain was. God is a fountain. And really the only way you can serve God is to t receive from him. You, you're a receiver. He's giving to you. And you can... Find refreshment and joy and life and happiness in him and then tell other people about that refreshment. About the, that's about the only way that we can really serve God. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 that we ought to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's a fountain. 
He called us out of darkness. He called us into his light. And so what do we do? We just proclaim his excellencies because we have tasted and we have seen that the Lord is good. So God is self-sufficient, in need of nothing. God is eternal, never had any beginning, never will have any end. And God is self-existent. He has the power of being within himself. Now let me draw some application about this third one, about God being self-sufficient. The first application is that you and I should not seek to be like God in this respect, self-sufficient. Because we're not self-sufficient. In many respects, we ought to seek to be like God. Theologians have divided God's attributes into two categories, communicable attributes and non-communicable attributes. Communicable attributes are attributes where we can partake of those attributes. For example, God is holy. We can be holy. God is loving. We can be loving. See the point? But there are other attributes that are non-communicable. God is omniscient. We are not omniscient. God is omnipresent. We are not omnipresent. God is self-existent. We are not self-existent. God is eternal. We are not eternal in the sense that we had a beginning. God is self-sufficient and we are not self-sufficient. We should not seek to be self-sufficient because sin is seeking to be utterly independent of God. You could boil down the essence of sin. It's seeking to be independent of God. Sin is so evil and so ugly because it is rejecting our creaturehood and it is exalting ourselves to be like God where we don't need anything else or we say we don't. It's saying to God, I don't need you. Faith and prayer demonstrate our dependence on God and sin and self-will demonstrate our independence of God. The essence of, print, of, of pride, excuse me, is to say to God, I don't need you. So we should never seek to be like God in his self-sufficiency. We are creatures. We will always be creatures. We will never be God. We're not going to morph into Godhood. Even though the Mormons would tell you that, that they will be as gods or they will be gods. No, the Bible never teaches that we will be God or gods. We will always be the creatures that God has made. And so we must not seek to be like God in this particular attribute. Second word of application. We should never think that God needs us to make himself complete. Never slip into that error. Because God is perfectly complete all within himself. We can't add to him. Our ceasing to exist can't diminish him. God is not growing or developing or becoming more complete. Now we are, we grow, we develop, we uh, become more complete. But God is not like us in that regard. The truth is God doesn't need us. Before we existed, he was perfectly happy. I hate to shatter your bubble. (laughs) But God was perfectly happy before you existed. And if you cease to exist this very minute, he would go on being perfectly happy within himself. God loves us, but he doesn't need us. You see, there's a difference there. God didn't create us to meet some unfulfilled need in himself. Sometimes by listening to certain preachers, you get that impression. They say, well... 
God was, God wanted fellowship. And so God created man because he wanted to have fellowship with man. And when sin was introduced, that fellowship was broken. And so that's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to restore the fellowship that we had in the beginning because God wanted that fellowship. Well, there's elements of truth to that, of course. God does want to have fellowship with us, but God didn't create us because he needed fellowship with a human being. That's not the point. I think that that kind of a message demeans God and exalts man, which is the exact opposite of what biblical truth does. Biblical truth humbles man and exalts God. A third implication of the self-sufficiency of God is that we should never think that God needs you and I to accomplish his will. If God is self-sufficient, that means he doesn't need anything. And he doesn't need you to get his will done. Now, he will use you to get his will done. But if he decides to use you to get his will done, that means that you are the one who is the privileged person to be able to be part of his plan. But let's say, let's say God wants to save a certain person. And so he gets your attention to go witness to that person, but you, you turn down. You say, no, I'm not going to do it, Lord. I don't want to face the possible rejection. I'm not going to go talk to him about Jesus. Well, does that mean that God's will is going to be thwarted? That God can't save this person? If we understand the Bible correctly, that God has an elect people in the world that he is going to save... Are we going to be able to thwart God's eternal and sovereign purposes from before time because we say, Lord, I'm not going? No way. God's going to raise up somebody else to do his will. And they're going to be the privileged person that gets to cooperate and partner with God to, do, to see that person come to faith. Do you remember John, or excuse me, Luke 19 when the Pharisees and the scribes were telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples because they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <laughs> Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And in Esther 4.14, Mordecai told Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. In other words, God's hands are not tied if you decide not to do his will. God's going to raise up somebody else to get his will done, and you're going to be the loser rather than the gainer by it. So don't have this proud, cocky thing, oh, God needs me because I'm such a great evangelist. He needs me to get his elect saved. No, he doesn't. He can use stones. He can use unbelievers. He can, God can do whatever he wants to do. So if God decides to use you, take a humble position before him and thank him that he decided to let you join him in working for his kingdom. That's a great privilege, folks. All right, let's boil all this down to a conclusion this morning. What does the self-existence of God mean for you and me? What effect should it have in our lives? And for me, when I think about God being self-existent, it draws me to worship Him. That's the main thing for me. Because I realize God is wholly unlike me. He is in a whole different class. <laughs> I don't even come close to being like Him in this regard. 
We can be like God to some extent in his communicable attributes, but we will never be like him in his incommunicable attributes. And the Bible says about God that he's holy. That word holy means set apart. God is set apart from us. He's set apart from everything. He is holy, holy, holy. If God is set apart, that means that he is unique. He's different. He's other than anything else. Sometimes you and I think, oh, there's a great deal of difference between that cockroach over there in the corner and me. What a, what a, what a great deal of difference there is. That cockroach, that's just a, a vile creature, and here I am, made in the image of God. But you know what? There is an infinite difference between me and God and there's only a finite difference between me and the cockroach. Because the cockroach is a creature and so am I. <laughs> we both share creaturehood. But God is not a creature. There is an infinite difference between the thing that he's made and the thing that made it. Do you see that, that point? So we need to humble ourselves and take a position on our face before the Almighty and worship him. Because he is who he is. And it's much different than anything else that we can even conceive of. The theology of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, they teach that God, the Father, is an exalted man with a body like ours. In fact, Joseph Smith taught that God was the son of another father. Our God had a father before him which seems to imply an eternal progression of God's all the way back to infinity. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is not a man, a great big man up in heaven, having a body like us. God is a spirit. He has no body parts. And he has no father before him. Everything that is came from this one eternal father of all. And I want to exhort you to take time to meditate on the self-existence of God. Take time to think about that. When you, when you get up tomorrow morning and you open your Bible and you breathe a prayer, Lord, show me your glory, just stop a minute and think, God, you're self-existent. <laughs> you, you never started to exist. You have just always been here. Lord, I, I can't, in my little brain, I can't even conceive of what that's really all about, but Lord, I recognize that you are in another class from everything that exists. And Lord, I bow before you and worship you. Just take time to think and meditate on who he is. I can think of nothing that will cause us to realize our littleness and dependency on God and his infinite greatness more than the truth of his self-existence. Brothers and sisters, the truth of an eternal, self-sufficient, self-existent God should cause us to drop to our knees and marvel and wonder and worship the God that made us. So let's just bow in prayer. We worship you, our Father in heaven. You gave us being. Lord, we would not be alive today were it not for your hand. And neither would this world be here. The mountains and the oceans and the seas or all the billions of people on this planet, nor the angels that cried 
ceaselessly, day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Lord, give us greater thoughts of you. Let us not be content with small thoughts of our God. Teach us, Lord, to stretch our thinking, stretch our brain power just a little bit, to conceive a little bit more of your greatness, that we might truly worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.